Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi everyone and welcome to My Millennium Money Professional. My name's Dev Raga and I'm your host and in this episode we'll go through the concept of the yield curve and why there's been a lot of talk about it inverting, particularly when it comes to the US Treasury bonds. If you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. For those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three main aims, education, empowerment and entertainment. Let's get started. Now, I'm recording this episode in the month of February 2023, and I think it's for release in probably April or May. And over the last few months, there's been a lot of talk about the inverted yield curve. So I think it's worthwhile exploring the concept of yield curves in general and what it all means. But before we do that, I think we need to talk about yield. What is yield? First of all, a yield is not the same as a return. Now, you're going to refer to an episode I did about calculating returns recently, which can be a simple sort of way of doing it, or it can be much more complex. And the way the returns are presented determines how you can interpret them. And it's really important that calculating returns can be done in various ways to make it look good or make it look bad. Whereas yield, on the other hand, is just earnings received on an investment. And that investment can be a bond or a security or even a rental property. It's usually expressed as a percentage compared to the current market value of the investments. So when companies pay out dividends, for example, that's a form of yield. It's just that for shares, they call it dividends. But even then, it's not 100% accurate. Now, I'll go into this sub-concept of distributions and dividends and yields a little bit further in this episode. For ETFs and managed funds, for example, they call it distributions. But again, it's not the same as dividends. And that's not the same as a yield. So what is a distribution then? Now, a distribution often includes all of the dividends paid out by each company within the ETF or managed fund. They all collect it and they give it to you. It also includes any other forms of income, such as interest. It also includes any realised capital gains from buying and selling the underlying asset. And this happens during rebalancing of the ETF. It also includes any foreign income that is ETFs that own foreign assets and associated tax credits. And it also includes any franking credits. So distributions are often confused with dividends, but it's a bit more involved than that. The formula for calculating the yield on an investment is net realised return divided by the principal amount. To highlight this concept, let's use an example. Amy is an air traffic controller with an annual income of, let's say, $150,000. Now, I don't have any idea how much they earn, so I'd be interested if you're an air traffic controller listening to this episode, please contact me because it'd be really cool to discuss and maybe even do an episode as to what it means to be an air traffic controller because I love aeroplanes. I'm constantly looking at them. Uh, and I'm one of those geeks that when I travel overseas or on a plane, I want to find out what plane that I'm actually going to be on. 
Anyway, back to Amy's case, she buys one share of company XYZ. Each share costs about $100. After 12 months, the share price is $110, and during that year, it pays a dividend of $2. Therefore, the yield calculation for Amy's investment is net realised return divided by principal amount, which is the $10 that she's made in the year, plus a dollar dividend, divided by 100. So it's actually 11 divided by 100, which is 11% yield. Now, if you break it down into dividend yield, then it's $1, which is 1 divided by 100, which is only 1%. So it's important to pay attention to terminologies between total yield, dividend yield, distributions, and dividends. It makes a big difference. Notice in the calculation, we didn't take into account the market value in the denominator. That's because there are various sub-definitions of yields. So let's look at some of the types of yields. There are two main types of yields on stocks. Number one is cost yield, and number two is current yield. So what's cost yield? Cost yield is when you have a price increase plus the dividends paid, and then you divide all of that by the purchase price because that's your cost. Whereas current yield is defined as the price increase plus the dividends paid divided by the current market price. Now in this calculation, the yields can often change on the market fluctuations of the stock price. Now this has a material impact on how you may analyze yield numbers. So let's use the same example as before. Let's say Amy still buys the one share in company XYZ, each share costing $100, and after 12 months, the share is now worth $110. And during that year, the dividend was only a dollar. The cost yield for Amy is 11 divided by 100, which is 11%. The current yield is actually 11 divided by 110, and it's only 10%. Notice now that it appears as if that the cost yield is actually better. That's only because the denominator is a cost price. So investors need to understand the calculations and how they're presented to truly appreciate the concept of the yield. Now, yields can be on bonds as well. They can be calculated on any investment. And bonds are often designed as yield kings. Bonds are preferred during times of uncertainty, during market volatility, as investors want more guaranteed returns rather than worry about market fluctuations. Now, you can refer to episode 202, where I talk about bonds and yields and how they're associated with inflation and interest rates. I also talk about it in episode 53, where I go specifically into significant detail about the concept of bonds. When calculating yield on bonds, it's called nominal yields. And the formula for nominal yields is annual interest earned divided by face value of the bond. So let's use an example to highlight this subconcept. Amy buys a government bond with a face value of $1,000 and the annual interest earned via coupon payments is around $100. Therefore, the nominal yield is 100 divided by 1,000, which is 10%. Now, if the yield on a bond is floated based on CPI or current interest rates, then it may change each year based on that. So why is it risky to make decisions solely based on yields? I'm talking about investment decisions. I commonly get asked, what is the highest dividend-paying stock, a highest-yielding ETF? But notice when calculating yield, it's always in relation to the purchase price or underlying market value of the asset. So if the market value goes down, it appears as if the yield is greater. But actually, you've also lost value in the underlying asset. My fundamentals are, when you're looking to invest, you need to do it two ways. You need to buy something that rises in value over the long term and it has to pay you an income during that time. Now, there's little point in investing in something which loses value over time but pays you an income. I don't want that investment. 
And of course, we all know my philosophy that if you buy something and it doesn't pay you any earnings or dividends or income, then it's not really an investment, but rather just a speculative asset. So don't confuse good investments versus mere speculative assets. To highlight this concept, let's use another example. Coming back to Amy's stock, which she bought for $100 per share in company XYZ, the yearly dividends it pays around a dollar, and after 12 months, the share price drops to $80. So let's calculate some yields. The cost yield is now 1 divided by 100, which is 1%. And the current yield is 1 divided by $80, which is 1.25%. Now, this is the dividend yield, not the total yield. Notice now the current yield seems 0.25% higher than the cost yield. So it looks great. But that's because the underlying asset value has dropped by 20%. And this is where marketing spin happens with ETF providers or companies that want your money. So pay close attention to this sort of false calculations and false advertising to get more investments. A rising yield is a terrible investment in some respects because it's a terrible investment in all respects. Now let's go for a quick break. And when I come back, we'll continue on the concept of yields, but more about yield curves. What is it, what it means, and when it inverts, what's the big deal? Be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Now, welcome back. We're talking about yields we talked about the various definitions, the subconcepts within the yields. We need to now understand yield curves. So what are yield curves? Now, generally speaking, these are graphs plotting the yield, that is interest rates of bonds against the maturity dates. Now, this is predominantly only related to treasury bonds. And the yield curves, although technically you can plot them for securities as well, but most of the time it's about bonds. But the primary purpose is to find out what the yields of bonds are compared to their maturation date. That's the whole point of a yield curve. The basic principle we need to understand here is if you buy a bond which has a long maturity date, then you should be rewarded with a higher interest rate. Why? Because this is because you're parting your money for a long time. So you should be rewarded for that risk. Conversely, if you buy a bond which matures in the near future, short-term bonds, for example, then your interest rate should be lower. That is the defining and fundamental principle of bond yields. The other thing is usually the curve plots bonds with the same level of risk. Now, the biggest bond yield curve people talk about in the media is the US Treasury bond yield curve, said to be the most stable return on your investment globally. Now, the Australian government also issues bonds and they too have a yield on them and they can be plotted on the yield curve as well. Generally speaking, there are three main yield curves. There's the normal yield curve, which is when the yield curve slopes upward. There's the abnormal yield curve, which is either flat 
or downward sloping curve, also referred to as an inverted yield curve, and I'll get to that bit a bit later in the episode. And in any of these yield curves, the x-axis has the various maturity dates of bonds with similar risks, and the y-axis has their various yields. So what's the most common reported yield curve in the media? Now, the most common one is either three months, two years, five years, 10 years, or 30-year US Treasury debt bonds. And this is calculated every single day and usually on their website by 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, United States. Now, let's talk a little bit about the normal yield curve. This is also called an upsloping yield curve. This is when the yields of longer-term bonds are higher than the yields for shorter-term bonds. Again, this makes sense because you're giving your money away for a longer term. So you should be expecting a better yield on your money because you're giving it away for longer, which means you're taking greater risk. This usually happens during periods of economic expansion. Let's use an example to highlight this concept. Now, again, I'm recording this in early Feb. And here are the Australian government bond yields for an Aussie audience. The two-year bond yield was 3.07%, five years, 3.23%, 10 years, 3.5%, and 15 years, 3.82%. That's an upward sloping yield curve. Is that good? Technically, yes. This means the longer the maturity date of the bond, notice the higher yields. So if you plot this on a graph and connect the dots, you'll get a normal yield curve. Now let's have a look at some of the other countries. The UK, for example, they call it GILTS, UK Government Liability in Sterling. In the US, they call it treasury bills. In Germany, they call it Bunds, B-U-N-D-S. It's all the same thing. They all name it differently. In the UK, the two-year gilt is 3.34%. The five-year is 3.12%. Notice how it's lower. The 10 years is 3.24%. Still lower than the two-year one. And the 30 years is 3.59%, which is the highest. So notice in this example, it doesn't clearly follow the upsloping pattern. That is, the five-year bond yield is lower than the two-year bond yield, and the 10-year bond yield is lower than the two years. And then when you get to 30 years, it's higher than everything else. This is unsurprising. It's haywire, given the UK's economic turmoil in recent months. Let's have a look at Japan, which is really interesting. For two years, it's negative 0.02. For five years, it's 0.17. For 10 years, it's 0.43. For 20 years, it's 1.29%. And for 30 years, it's 1.52%. Although overall, it looks kind of good. Look at the two-year bond. If you buy it, you owe them money. That's insane. But notice as you go further down in the future, the yields are getting better. Japan is following a normal yield curve. And again, generally, a normal yield curve is observed during times of economic expansion. What about a flat yield curve? This is when there is not much difference between short-term bonds and medium and long-term bond yields. Germany and UK have this sort of pattern going on, and usually this happens when the economy has expanded and is likely transitioning to some darker truths coming up. It's a transitory graph which happens slowly over some months or even years. Now we get to the inverted yield curve. What is it? This is when longer-term bond yields pay less than shorter-term bond yields. This means the slope of the curve is downward when you connect the dots on the graph, plotting all the yields of various maturation date bonds. Now, this tends to happen when investors get nervous about the future of an economy, so don't want to part ways with their money. So they tend to pull it into short-term bonds. And as a result of the demand, the yields rise over the short term, whilst long-term yields suffer. 
This also tends to happen when investors tend to think the cash rate from Reserve Bank is going to go lower in the future. And generally speaking, every time the bond yield curve inverts, there's been economic consequences such as recessions, particularly in the United States. So let's put all of this together and see how cash rates affect bond yield curves. Think about it this way. When interest rates are low, it means investors want higher returns on their money. So they take their money out of bank accounts and bonds and put it into other investments, largely stock markets and businesses. This tends to spur economic expansion because businesses use that money to expand. This has flow-on effects on the bond yields over the long term, i.e. they become higher. When investors are pessimistic, it's usually because cash rates are higher, which means investors get worried about their money outlook for the future, especially in the medium to long term, so they take money out of the stock market and other investments and put them into the short-term bond markets for more security to get the secure yield, albeit lower, but it's also more secure. This means long-term bonds now suffer because money now goes to the short-term bonds. So why is the yield curve important? It provides three important information. Number one, it is determined by the monetary policy. Number two, it tells the sentiment of investors and their expectations for future interest rates, economic growth and inflation. And number three, it's also a determinant of profitability of banks. Let's tie all this together and use an example. Let's say Amy is a nurse who's looking at buying her first home. She is very conscious of the current economic environment in Australia and the rising interest rates. Now, at the time of recording, which is in February 2023, the RBA cash rate sits at around 3.1% and with the RBA meeting next week. Although Amy doesn't directly check the yield curves, which is influenced by the cash rate, she is keen to fix her mortgage rate because she's worried about rising interest rates moving forward. So she hunts for the cheapest bank rate, which is fixed. Let's say she's looking for a three-year fixed rate, and the bank would then calculate the interest rate on this mortgage and take into account what's called the risk-free yield curve, then add an amount to cover their costs and compensate for their risk that the borrower might not repay the loan. And that's called calculating the credit risk. So what's the deal with this inverted yield curve, and why is it so freaked out people? Historically in the United States, inverted yield curves have preceded recessions the data is very reliable. An inverted yield curve tells investors interest rates will be lower in the long term, which can have an impact on the economy. Essentially, investors get spooked that long-term investor returns will continue to fall and remember the mantra for investors over the long term, our investments should rise in value and produce a rising income or dividend. And since 1956, preceding every recession, the US Treasury bill yield curve has inverted That's predicting a recession in the United States in 2023. This is why people are sounding the alarm. So let's look at the US bond yields treasury. For three months, it's 4.62%. For six months, it's 4.79%. For 12 months, it's 4.61%. Pretty good. Now, in two years, it's 4.13% starts to drop. Five years, it's 3.53%, even lower. 10 years is 3.44%, even lower, and in 30 years, it's 3.6%. So the differential between a three-month bond yield, which is 4.62%, and a 30-year bond yield, which is 3.6%, is almost a percent. Now, if you plot the dots on the yield curve, you'll notice a downward sloping trend. Now, how does the inverted yield curve affect you and me? What tends to happen is short-term interest rates rise, which means the cost of borrowing also rises. 
And remember, the yield curve is impacted by the monetary policy set by the RBA, which is the Reserve Bank of Australia, which currently means rising interest rates. Now, inflation data just came out recently in Australia for 2022, and that peaked at 7.8%, which is the highest it's been for ages. It was a surprise jump from the previous quarter, but most economists think Australian inflation is about to peak in early 2023. Overall, borrowing costs rise, which means we have to dedicate a larger percentage of our income towards servicing debt. Therefore, this means less disposable income to spend, and again, what drives the economy is spending. If we spend less because we have less disposable income, the businesses suffer because they're not getting our money, and the economy contracts, which is bad news. Bad news equals recessions or even depressions. That's the overall concern at the moment for 2023 for Australia. So how does the inverted yield curve impact investors? There are two types of investors for this purpose. Number one is the fixed income investors, and number two is the equity investors like me. Fixed income investors where long-term bond yields are lower, so people don't really buy them. This means more money goes into short-term bonds, which tends to invert the yield curve even more. That is overall not good news for fixed income investors. They want long-term returns, not just short-term returns. Equity investors like me, investors get nervous about business profitability. When they happen that equity investors tend to pull their money from more aggressive investments and try to put more money into consumer staples. We all need to eat, drink, use the toilet, do basic banking and move around. But the investors who have taken a bit more risk now need to take on more risk to achieve their returns. And this mainly affects the hedge funds and capital management companies because they're looking for higher returns rather than just a broad market index return. Now I'm an equity investor. I'm an indexer, not a hedge fund manager. The key thing to learn about this is that the inverted yield curve often precedes a recession, particularly in the United States, but it does not cause the recession. The cause of recessions has its own set of factors, and I've done an episode on recessions and depressions. So an inverted yield curve, it's not a cause and effect relationship with respect to recessions. That's about it for this episode. Now, before I finish up, just a real shout out from a recent Thailand holiday experience, which was in January. Number one, we fly Singapore Airlines. We frequently fly them. They are simply the best, I think, and are second to none. We don't fly any other airline, mostly for international flights. So I really appreciate Singapore Airlines for looking after us. Shout out also to Changi Airport. I can't think of a better airport to transit through than Singapore. They're simply next level. We connected between flights at Changi Airport on our return in 21 minutes between Terminal 2 and Terminal 3 with two children. I don't think you could do that in any airport around the world. They have it so down-packed, it's amazing. Then you compare that to the Australian airports and realise how unimpressive Sydney and Melbourne and other Aussie airports truly are. Number two is the Banyan Tree Group of Hotels. They're phenomenal, always five-star. Thanks for looking after us. Your hospitality was amazing and appreciate you upgrading our suites at short notice and just making our stay as perfect as possible. Number three is our tour guides. We chose Forever Vacations. When we travelled, we needed a private tour rather than a group tour, so we used Forever Vacations and we found them to be excellent. Travelling as a family meant we needed things to be suited for us. For example, I'm a strict vegetarian, so places to eat had to be suitable for me. Things we did had to be suitable for our children. We needed flexibility in stops and rest breaks and itineraries. And we really didn't feel rushed with any of the tours. They really did a great job. 
Shout out to Bessica and Marky. Thank you. And if you're looking for private tours, check out Forever Vacations. And lastly, to that guy who was sitting in the car in Singapore and I randomly asked you if you could drop us back at Changi Airport thinking you're a taxi service and you politely and respectfully said you don't have the time to do that at the moment and it's your private car and not a taxi service and apologise you couldn't help us. I'm so sorry for unintentionally thinking you're a taxi service. Now, remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using, or just leave a five-star review on all of the platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to these podcasts. So please keep them coming. I really do put a lot of thought and effort into these episodes. My name's Dev Raga, and this is My Millennium Money Professional. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.